Biden's a union buster. Congress is about to get stuck on absolutely everything. Trump's dining with Nazis. China's erupted in protests. And the biggest soccer game in U.S. history, maybe. This is the Balance of Power Roundtable, broadcast on WKXL Radio and available wherever you get your podcasts, including on the video platform of your choice. I'm Matt Robeson with our usual panel of former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes and conservative commentator, analyst, and consultant Alicia Preston. We are recording this on Tuesday morning, November 29th, and we have news that's, I don't want to say breaking, it's uh, it's still relatively fresh, though. Last evening, President Joe Biden issued a statement calling on Congress to pass legislation to force through an agreement to avert a rail strike in this country. Without freight rail, many U.S. industries would shut down, and as many as 765,000 Americans would be put out of work. This is something that President Biden wants to avoid. But in order to get there, he is going to try to jam through a tentative agreement that he helped to create back in September that four rail unions have rejected. He is going to try to bust through that opposition. Paul Hodes, Joe Biden is a longtime ally of unions. 30 years ago, he rose on the floor of the U.S. Senate to vote against a a union-busting measure to stand up for rail unions. Now he is coming down hard for this agreement and against the opposition of these four unions. Is Joe Biden becoming a union buster? And uh, is this the right move? Well, he's in a pretty awful position. I mean... So four out of 12 unions have rejected a deal that he personally intervened to broker. I mean, he got he got his he got his hands dirty in this one. He jumped in and thought he had a deal, but four out of 12 unions have rejected it primarily over um a scheduling system that the rail union that the rail rail bosses have put in which basically ties everybody's hands about taking any time off for anything it's it's a real awful thing for people who work in the railroads so joe biden's a union guy he rose on the power of unions he's been a union guy and here he now finds himself having to uh, push through a measure that the unions are very, very, very unhappy about. Um, Pelosi says that she can get it passed on the floor. Whether or not they can pass, you know, a a congressional measure um, that, that basically is the deal that was brokered and get it through the Senate is an entirely other matter. Um, because you, who knows what the Republicans will do. They may just thumb their noses at it because why should they do anything to do something that Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi want to do? On the other hand, if the Republicans in the Senate say, yeah, this is really good, we're going to be, we're, we can now uh, put on great 60 second ads saying we were happy to join President Joe Biden in busting unions. Um, what a great ad for Republicans. So who knows what's going to happen? But he's in a terrible shit. It's a terrible place for him to be. Alicia, I assume that from a substantive point of view, because you've spoken to this before, that you support the move for Congress to intervene here and force this deal through and avert a strike. I'm assuming that. Correct me if I'm wrong. But also, what do you expect to happen? Will Republicans in Congress get behind this? 
I hope they do. I hope they don't allow politics to uh, to intervene uh, where it shouldn't, because this is something that, to your point, 750,000 people out of work and 300 plus million people will see rising costs of every goods and service that is out there uh, come the new year. And we're already we're already difficult. Look, I'm not anti-union, but when you have four out of 12 putting a blockade to something that will affect an entire nation, I believe it is there the job of Congress to intervene. Uh, so I think they should push this through. The majority of the union members supported it. And you have to, at this point, say, all right, we're Congress. Our job is to do what's best for the country. And families can't afford any more economic hardship right now. I think it's vital that it gets through. I do want to note that, you know, I don't know why, and I think I said it on the show, Biden did a victory lap when he announced his deal uh, because everyone knew that there were 12 unions and had to vote unanimously for this to go through. And uh, again, politics has to get out of the way of policy sometimes. It was affected then. It's being affected now. Republicans would get behind this if Joe Biden hadn't drafted it. They should get behind it now. Well, two thoughts. One is, substantively, this is not exactly a case of I was... (laughs) I I was reaching a little bit in my intro there. This isn't exactly union busting. It's true. It's going to enforce with with the power of Congress, if this goes through, a a deal that four out of the 12 unions have voted against. On the other hand, it's a deal. It's it's not exactly indentured servitude. It's a deal that includes a 23% pay increase by the end of 2023 and a cap on healthcare costs. So It's not like the railroad workers aren't getting some substantial concessions as part of this deal. It's been closely negotiated. Marty Walsh, the labor secretary, has been hands in on forging this deal. And he is an old school union guy. So I, 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 I hear the position of the four unions that have ultimately come out against this. I, I understand. And look, I don't work a job like this. And so when they say that there are dangerous, brutal schedules involved in this new scheduling system that that the railroads have put into place that they object to, I believe them. But it's a process. It's a compromise. And to Paul's point, that's what leadership is. It's making very, very difficult decisions. And now I'll say the second thought, which is the much more trite, which is politically, I'm not so sure that this is so bad for Joe Biden and the Democrats. Yes, politics these days has become about just dancing with the one that brung you, being with your base. And unions, for the most part, are still part of the Democratic Party's base. But if there's one lesson that we heard from the midterms, it was sort of the reasserted power of the middle, of swing voters, of people who see a little bit of both sides. And it's not the worst thing in the world politically for Democrats to stand up and say, you know what, these are our folks, we're with them, but for the greater good of the country, for all of those people who would be put out of work, for all of those working and middle-class families who can't afford another price shock uh, in all of their weekly budgets, yeah, we've got to push this through, and there are some major benefits for the workers involved. A 23% pay raise is nothing to sneeze at. Paul Hodes, if you were still a member of Congress right now, yes or no, would you vote for this deal? I'd have to. Uh, I'd have to because. Uh, and you're I a would, union member. You are a, a union member. Correct. You sat in union halls. And I, I've seen you go around. So what you do when you when you sit down as a member of Congress, Republicans generally don't get to do this. Democrats have to do it. Um, and they're usually happy to. When you go to meet 
with the with the union representatives in your state. You sit down, people go around the room and they say, I'm Matt Robeson. I'm a member of the Sheet Metal Workers Local 709. I'm a member of uh, the Steam and Pipe Fitters you know, local. I'm, I'm a member of, I'm a member of local 371 of the American Federation of Musicians, which is a part of the union alliance. I mean, I was and one I, of the few union members in Congress. Right. And I've I would worked have, for two of them. I've worked right. for two of them. I worked for Mike Michaud, who was a mill worker from Maine, never went to college, by the way. He was a mill worker. He was a quintessential union member. You were another one. There, there were, there were literally like three, three. when I was working in Congress. Right. So you sat in those rooms, you sat, you identified yourself as a union member and now you're saying that if you were still a member of congress you would vote yes to force through this deal look the it the schedules that they've imposed on the on the union on the on the railroad workers are terrible however uh, as Pelosi said, the railroads have been selling out to Wall Street to boost their bottom lines, making obscene profits while demanding more and more from railroad workers. Um, progress and change doesn't always come all at once. Uh, as you say, 23% increase in pay and the catastrophe that would happen to this country if the railroads are shut down uh, require just, you know, it's a suck it up and deal. It's a suck it up and deal. Um, there, this is not the last rodeo. This is necessary. I'm sorry to. I'd say I'm really sorry. You know, I'm with you. I've been with you on on on, on just about everything. But we need to keep this country moving, especially now during the holidays. There's too much at stake. Well, and the other thing that I think you would be able to say if you were voting for this in Congress is, you know, eight out of the twelve unions have voted for it, right? right? Um, you know, this is, so if you're if you're sitting in that room with the union representatives, um, this is, it, labor, people speak of labor as a monolith. It is not. There are many Correct. voices uh, in the labor movement. And this is a case where they're not all speaking with one voice. And you could say, look, I am listening. I am listening to the majority of the unions who are saying, this is a good deal for us. And I have to take into account the interests of all these union members and the interests of all of my constituents. Um, but again, you know, Alicia, I'll just, you know, one more on this. I mean, you have been an impassioned voice for compromise and the middle, and you stand up for conservative values, but you don't want doctrinaire extremes on either side. I mean, you, I, I, I have to suspect that you think that Joe Biden is really doing the right thing. And and the Democrats and the Republicans who are probably going to push this through, this is a moment of a little bit of bipartisan compromise, a good substantive outcome. Well, that's what I was going to touch on. I think this can be a moment. Americans are looking for it. Americans want it. The election taught us we're tired of divisiveness, if nothing else. This is the time where Republicans and Democrats can stand up together and do what's best for the country. And you can do it without, if you're worried about political backlash, I don't know what political backlash you're going to get, not from the people. The people would give you political backlash if we're looking at massive price increases through the terrible winter months on fuel, on food, on necessities. Everything would be affected. Fun note, I read an article this morning that, guess what isn't going to be affected? Christmas, because any goods that have to travel via rail for the Christmas season has already gotten here. But we're talking the dark months of the winter um, when things get expensive and, and difficult to begin with. So I think this is that moment. This is the moment Congress can say the election's behind us, politics is behind us. We're going to unite 
for the good of the American people, because this is a big deal and they can, everyone can take their victory lap if they want. I don't care who gets credit, but yes, I support Joe Biden asking Congress to do this. And I support Congress trying to get it through. That Here's was a beautiful be jolly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. La, 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 la. yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, I, I, I think that was a beautiful sentiment from Alicia. Now I'm going to harsh everybody. It made, it made me cry. I, I actually, Alicia, that brought tears to my eyes. The the, the joy of bipartisanship. Uh, just yeah, yeah, all right. Let's step on Republicans it. Right? And That's my holiday gift to you. Joining Paul. hands yeah. at Christmas well, the holiday time. gift from Congress to the rest of us is probably going to be approximately nothing because maybe gift. Congress will, will get this through. But um, there's a whole bunch of other things on their to-do list in what is now the lame duck session of Congress. Let's run through them for a moment, shall we? Oh my gosh, Paul, are, are you having like a like a mental infarction? You've gone from singing Christmas carols to quacking like a duck. Um, we may have to take an early break on WKX. Have you been hitting the eggnog? What's going on here? Paul Hose is unwell. We, the morning. We that, that was actually that was actually his motto and his last run for Congress. Hi, I'm Paul Hodes and I'm unwell. Um, that was actually later borrowed. Fun fact by Marjorie Taylor Green. Okay. Um, Lame duck session of Congress. Woo! Lame duck session of Congress. This segment is brought to you apparently by Aflac. Um, and there is actually a Aflac, if you're listening, Aflac, take sponsorships. Aflac, we we would like you to sponsor this show. You'd be a really good sponsor for Balance of Power. Yeah. So so would be the pharmaceutical company that sells lithium. Um, okay. So um, first up, government funding. You know. We have a government in this country still, which is good. We, we voted to continue having a government during the midterm. So awesome. Pat on the back for us. But before we sprain a shoulder doing that, we have to actually pay for all of the things that the government does. The civilian workforce of the federal government is about 2 million strong. There's another 2 million in the armed services. We need to pay these people. We have programs and services that the government provides. And you know we need to fund all those things. And the funding for all of those things runs out on December 16th. Um, Alicia Preston, since the ball is now in the Republicans' court because they're going to take over the House, will they pass a funding measure, a full-year appropriations deal for next year, or are they going to take some other kind of path? What do you think? They're going to do a like every Congress does, it seems, in the last decade. They'll do a stopgap measure to get us through and a stopgap measure to get us through. And then we'll be looking at February and they'll finally get something done. No one seems to be able to ever pass a full year budget without a couple stumbles along the way. Um, And, you know, particularly lame duck Congress. Speaking of lame duck Congress, just so our listeners know, before the show, Matt, Paul and I will email or text back and forth potential topics. And Paul coined a new term this morning as we were discussing it. And it was, yes, on lame duckery. So lame duckery. it is now lame duckery, thanks to yeah. Paul, and I enjoy that. <laughs> and it it rhymes with another popular term with the kids these days that I won't say on the radio. Um, but that could I think be referred to as Congress, I think that's yes. what's going to turn into. Look, I think there are, so Alicia, just to, just to unpack a little bit what you were just suggesting, there are sort of three options here for Congress. Well, actually, there's maybe a sneaky fourth. So one is uh, the best thing. They pass a full year appropriations deal. They fund the government for next year. Another option is they pass what's called a continuing resolution. So it's not a new law to say, here's what all the funding levels will be for next year. It's let's just do whatever we did 
last year, but there are different flavors of that. You can say, all right, we're going to do what we did last year, but we'll, we'll tweak just a little bit here and there. Okay. That's, that's a continuing resolution. A third option is sort of um, a, a bizarre love child of those two where they, they kind of delay and they say, we'll pass a continuing resolution, but just for a few weeks and see if we can get a deal for next year. And a fourth option is they arrive at absolutely nothing um, and we have a government shutdown. So Paul, with that little piece of deep dive explication done, um, what's what's going to happen here? Um, Karnak says continuing resolution um, and maybe tweaked, maybe not, but certainly continuing resolution because that is the path of least resistance um, and all the members of Congress are thinking about is uh, who's leaving, who's staying. Uh, the Republicans are taking over. The sky is going to fall. Um, the, the retiring members are all now shunt, being shunted into these tiny little cubicles, and they're saying goodbye and having goodbye parties, and it's holiday time. We can't get anything real done. It's continuing resolution time because remember they're also having to deal with raising the debt limit, and and the, the so not only do we have appropriations, we have paying for what's already been spent. Um, so those two things um, actually are sort of like the Scylla and Charybdis of the budgetary process. And um, all right, I got I, I got to cut in here. You've made two references here. I am so in favor of obscure references. I love them. I actually, I heart them more than just about anything else. Um, Scylla and Charybdis were the two monsters um, that guarded the gates. To Correct. The so you've got to pass by these, you know, clowns to the left and me, jokers to the right. And you also made a reference earlier to Karnak. That's a bit that Johnny Carson used to do about Karnak. 30 years ago, where right. he would pretend to be a fortune teller and he'd hold a sealed envelope up to his forehead. And then he'd say the answer to what was inside the envelope, sort of like Jeopardy style. He would give like a word. And then thank you. The thank you. For... They would have a question in it. Yeah, right. Thank you for interpreting for our listeners. For our exactly. younger Everyone knows who Karnak is. What the great everyone of a certain is. age, which uh, wow. you are not, Alicia. You're extremely obvious. Young. By the way, the best Karnak that he ever did was he held up an envelope and he said, Sis Boomba. And he <laughs> lowered it and he opened it and he said, What sound does an exploding sheep make? Um, <laughs> so, speaking of exploding sheep, I think what is going to come, this is going to come down to this funding question is sort of the internal dynamics between Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy is incentivized to wait he wants to kick the can down the road he wants nothing he's done have, he's going to have more power in a few weeks and so he might as well assert more control mitch mcconnell probably is more strategic probably sees that if we got to a shutdown at some point it would backfire on republicans it would step on their message their image and their brand and He's not going to like it, and he, his situation isn't changing. So I, I think a lot is going to depend on sort of the back and forth between those two, who is going to be able to assert more control. Ultimately, I think both of you are right. We'll probably land on a continuing resolution with some tweaks, but there are wild cards in there because there are other moving parts in the midst of this lame duckery. There's funding for Ukraine. There's there's authorization for everything that the Department of Defense does. Um, you know, there, there's all kinds of things that are going to create political cross pressures. 
I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but Congress does this weird thing where when it comes to government agencies, first, they authorize them to spend money, and then they follow that up by passing a bill to actually spend the money. The first part is sort of making the policy of what that agency is going to do. The second part is providing the funds. I, it's, it, it, it's a long, long tangled story why they do things this way. Let's just accept that they do. So we've been talking about the funding part, but there is also the earlier part. And the one piece of authorizing legislation that Congress usually manages to pass concerns the Department of Defense. It's, it's just one place where the parties tend to get together. There seems to be a little bit of bipartisanship and they kind of sort of managed to get it done. The problem is we haven't gotten it done and this year, and th this is another thing still pending on Congress's plate. And last week, we saw Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin sending a letter to the leaders of Capitol Hill imploring them to pass a bill to authorize funding for the Department of Defense and all of its programs. But on the other hand, Kevin McCarthy has pressure, significant pressure from the House Freedom Caucus, which says that a woke Pentagon culture is destroying America and they want to hold firm. Uh, so I'm going to go to you again here, Alicia. Um, what is going to happen when it comes to the Department of Defense? Well, I think the woke morons on the far right freedom caucus will realize when they get a little briefing that you have to fund the department of defense or we go boom it, it's just so naive and ridiculous it, it's kind of like the same group that says we're not going to fund ukraine because that's not our problem um not understanding you know we live on a globe with other countries and the ramifications of the big picture of our acts of military defense and weaponry so i i think it'll pass it'll come around um I don't think McCarthy has to negotiate with the Freedom Caucus on this matter. I don't know how the Pentagon's woke. I don't care if the Pentagon's woke. I care if they have bigger bombs than the other guy in case we ever need to be in that position and they need to be properly funded and personnel needs to be properly taken care of uh, every day going forward. You know, what concerns Kevin second. McCarthy, though, Paul, is he doesn't have to negotiate with the whole House Freedom Caucus. He has to bring along the five of them who have so far said that they are committed to voting against him for speaker. He has to win them over. And the price seems to be playing hardball on defense. Yeah, right. He can play hardball on defense, but those those same people who don't want to vote for him as manager also are 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 in love with Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. They they don't seem to to care. So I, I mean I, I think Alicia, with all great respect you are engaging in some wishful thinking you 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 believe that there is a germ of sanity left in these five or so maybe five plus uh whack jobs on the far far right who you know forget about whether they'll vote for mccarthy for speaker have all been making noises about basically pulling funding on 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 ukraine um so so the the defense budget um could very well be the place they make their their last gasp. Um, is it counterintuitive that Republicans would refuse to fund the military? Sure. Is it counterintuitive that we would be dealing with the extreme wackery during the lame duckery on the right of these people? Uh, yes, it is. You'd think that maybe they'd, they'd get the message. But 
you know, I think they're more about sending a message than getting the message. Alicia, can I throw some numbers at you just to underscore Paul's point? And I want you to be able to respond. In May, 57 House Republicans, most of them returning, voted against the $40 billion in aid that we sent to Ukraine. In Since that time, Scott Perry, the chair of the Freedom Caucus, has said that he wants to investigate and potentially end U.S. aid to Ukraine. And Kevin McCarthy said in an interview in October, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to want to write a blank check to Ukraine. So it seems like there is a significant knot of opposition to, at the very least, doing what the administration is asking for you know, and they're going to want to get in and make some changes. They're going to want to show that they're that they're futzing with it a little bit. Um, and at most, maybe ending aid to Ukraine altogether. But you you think that eventually this will come around? I think it'll come around. That's not going to happen. Look, what happened with that vote in those 57 who wanted to end um, aid to Ukraine? And this is a gross but realistic political process that happens with Democrats and Republicans is we're in an election year. Some people think their home districts don't want funding for Ukraine in this instance. It could be any bill. It could be whatever the issue or the, uh, or the topic of the year is. And so they get together with leadership and leadership says, all right, I got enough votes over here. You're in a district that this could hurt you. You can vote against it and we're still going to pass it. That's how that actually works. So we don't know how many of those 57 actually voted against funding for aid for Ukraine because they believe that or how many felt their district wanted them to take that position. And McCarthy or whomever told them we've got it covered. You can vote against it without damaging the reality here. That's what that's about. I, I think. You know, Paul's been a congressman. I have not. But I know from some I've worked for that you can run on a certain position and then you get in a little room with people who know a whole lot more information and intelligence than you do. And they go, here's what's going to happen if we don't do this. And you go, oh, that's really bad. And you change your mind and you vote for certain funding things. I think that's what's going to happen with enough Republicans that aid to Ukraine will continue. One final piece of lame duckery, and I think it's a piece of good news that we'll all agree on. It seems like the Senate is set to pass. And by the time people hear this, they may have already passed the Respect for Marriage Act, which protects same sex. And can't believe we have to say this and we have to do this, but also interracial marriages. Um, it, it passed a critical procedural hurdle last week in a 62 to 37 vote with the support of 12 Republicans in the Senate. Uh, reflections and thoughts on, on the significance of this piece of bipartisanship, Paul? Thank goodness. That's all I can say is um, a little bit of sanity prevails and boy, is that a good thing. Now, if they'll just apply the same uh, the same reasonable logic to the Electoral Count Act, which would remove ambiguities from the Electoral Count Act that Trump tried to exploit to overturn the election results, uh, that would be a, a a smart move. Those two pieces um, are are actually very important to the future of our country. Um, and uh, good, good job. Thank you, Republican members of the Senate for whom sanity has prevailed. Alicia. 
Well, I mean, you noted, I can't believe we have to say this and do this today about interracial marriage. The reality is we don't. Um, there is no way it would be constitutional for a state or anybody to outlaw interracial marriage. Um, I think it's purely political to put that in the book so they can try test the Supreme Court or say someone else is a racist. That being said, I don't care if this law passes. I obviously support gay marriage and interracial marriage. I get the gay marriage portion in there a little more than the interracial not because I ever think it would change even at the Supreme Court, but because it is a new federal protection and they want to codify it, particularly in light of what happened with Roe v. Wade. Although I'd also like to note, I think they're two completely different issues because and, and they keep getting conflated. I mean, Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said it's not a federal issue. You can't say that about gay marriage for the simple fact that the federal government recognizes legal marriages and it affects things. It affects taxes. It affects Social Security. So the federal government is already involved in marriage. So there is a federal jurisdiction over marriage. So that's why I don't think the two issues should be conflated and there shouldn't be fear. But if they want to codify it into law so that, you know, we don't have to take the question up again anytime in the near future, that's fine with me. I hope it passes. I'll, I'll just note that when Justice Thomas wrote uh, after the Dobbs decision, in future cases, we should reconsider all of this court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell. He left out Loving v. Virginia conspicuously and it, it 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 that is the landmark case that in which the supreme court said no interracial marriage of course is is protected by the constitution but it's grounded in the same constitutional and legal logic as those other cases he left it out to avoid political controversy but it's very much in jeopardy because of the reasoning in Dobbs. Well, he left I it out because he, he's married to a white yeah, person. Yeah, he left it out because, A, he left it out because he, he's in an he, interracial he left, marriage. He left, it out, he left it out because he's a hypocrite. He left it out because he's got a conflict of interest. He's He left it out I, because I don't, he's Judge Thomas. I, I don't know how not thinking we should revisit the constitutionality of interracial marriage makes him a hypocrite because he's in an interracial marriage. I think what he's saying is that should not be revisited. There's nothing hypocritical about saying yeah, but, it shouldn't be revisited. But but how can he say revisit everything else except my personal situation? I mean, come I on. I don't think it's his personal situation. I mean, it is his personal situation, but I'm not saying that's the motivator behind it. There is no way, no way in 2022 you could have nine members of the KKK on the Supreme Court, and they're not going to say you can't constitutionally have interracial marriage. It's just never going to happen. And it shouldn't. And it wouldn't. And it's a political ball put in the bill so someone can vote against it. And they say, see, you're a racist. That's all it is. Uh, the problem the problem is that Roe v. Wade rested on a plank of legal reasoning. Samuel Alito removed that plank as part of the Dobbs decision. That plank is also what supports Loving v. Virginia. That's that's the problem you have here. And so do you think as a political matter, as a practical matter, the court would never, ever do that, never, ever remove protections for interracial marriage? Yes. Uh, maybe. Okay, maybe. Yes, absolutely. But, but we might have said that about the underlying reasoning for Roe v. Wade a few years ago. And in fact, we includes the very justices that overturned it as part of their confirmation hearing, who said, this is stare decisis. It's settled law. We're not going to overturn it. You lied, Brett Kavanaugh, right? You know, like, I, I mean, I, I don't think- There's the huge difference is what they said is it's a state issue. 
marriage is not a state issue for the reasons I said before. They can't, the, the federal government can't wipe its hands of marriage unless they remove everything from, you know, tax incentives or tax breaks and social security benefits and all those things. The federal government is legally bound to legal marriage in this country. Therefore, they have jurisdiction. And I'm a huge state's rights person. But this is a place where that doesn't apply. It can apply to Roe v. Wade. It can apply to, or not Roe v. Wade specifically, it can apply to where a, the responsibility or authorization of abortion should lie because the federal government isn't involved in that. So I think they're two completely different issues that everyone wants to conflate. I'm not worried in the least. Well, I'm not worried even a little bit about interracial marriage ever. I'm also not worried about the gay marriage decision being overturned. I think it's a federal civil rights issue. But again, if they want to codify it into law because it is new, I understand that as well. I can only tell you that Kimberly Whaley, former CBS News legal analyst and uh, noted legal scholar on this show on Beyond Politics, said that that ruling is now in jeopardy. So even if as a practical matter, you think that the Supreme Court would avoid this, maybe they would. Do I trust? Do I trust everyone's equality in the hands of these people? I do not. I do not trust what, my what rights in the hands of Amy Coney Barrett. What possible what case would come to the Supreme Court to oh, overturn oh, racial marriage? Oh, what, who's going to bring a case that the Supreme Court's going to accept that would overturn racial okay. interracial marriage? Clarence Thomas has outlined in writing that he thinks that all substantive due process rulings should be reexamined. He didn't mention explicitly Loving v. Virginia, but he said all. I am a strict originalist when it comes to the writings of Clarence Thomas. This is what the man said. He said we should remove. So if you remove the plank, the foundation legally, the finding in the Supreme Court that protects interracial marriage, it is by definition in jeopardy. If you find, if you start to assemble But they can't just sit in a room and say, let's go back and look at this ruling from 27 years ago or whatever years they are, from whatever. Oh, and no, we you can't go it. back and look you at need rulings. A case. Wait a minute. You need a, a case before ago. you. Wait a minute. You need a, a case minute. before you. What yeah, yeah, case yeah. will be brought before them? Oh, come on. I mean, look, you get you you get some legislature and governor down there in the good old places down the south. You know, it, the, of course, a case can come before them. And as if if as a court, they believe with Thomas that substantive due process is dead because they did it in Roe v. Wade and they can do it in anything else. It opens the door to all kinds of judicial mischief. And you can't put anything past this cabal of perjuring, lying politically motivated fear mongering and race baiting that's all it is i not at all not at all because again for remember paul is the former federal prosecutor here you mm -hmm. can indict a ham sandwich and you only need one case the point is that what we're what you're essentially asking us to do is to put our faith in the good sound political judgment of the majority that currently resides on the Supreme Court. Well, I support the majority of the Supreme Court, so I'm probably not the person to make that argument to. Well, for the majority <laughs> but... of Americans who just showed at the ballot box that they do not trust that majority, I think their reaction to this particular piece of legislation, which does include protections for interracial marriage, is, you know what? Maybe you're right, Alicia, but better safe than sorry. Let's codify this. Because we do not trust the Supreme Court to stand up for our fundamental rights.
You think that the 2022 election was an indictment on the United States Supreme Court and not on Donald Trump and MAGA? That I mean, that's not jumping a shark. That's jumping a great It's not whale. an or, my friend. It is an <laughs> and. It is an no, and. No, the swing voters did not, who made the decision this election, the swing voters did not vote based on the Supreme Court. They voted based on uh, the divisive MAGA movement and the wanting to get passed. That yesterday. totally, that statement is, is you are... It, <clears throat> That statement ignores the fact that clearly um, all kinds of evidence, exit polling um, and other evidence support that abortion was one of the key issues. The only reason the abortion, uh, that abortion was one of the key issues in this election was because of what the Supreme Court did. Um, if the Supreme Court hadn't overturned Roe v. Wade, frankly, Alicia, your, 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 your cultish party uh, would probably have done better than it did. Um, but abortion and the Supreme Court were the motivators for a huge number of, voters, of Democrats, including, of, of voters, including new voters, including independents, including young voters, including crossover Republican voters who finally saw that the Supreme Court uh, and its decision threatened our fundamental liberties. I don't discount that voters were appropriately concerned about insurrection and MAGA and Trump, but abortion was a huge issue. That's the Supreme Court. Uh, and the, the, the citizens of the United States have seen just as my friend Justice David Souter said to me almost 20 years ago, politics have no place, essentially, but politics have entered the Supreme Court. And that has been a, a great to the great damage of not just the ju judiciary, but our faith in institutions. And it had a lot to do with the election results this past election. Well, it is well, true 27% of voters left the polls and told pollsters, that abortion was their number one issue. And we saw in the referendum in Kansas, for example, a massive outpouring, not just from Democrats, like far outpacing support that Democrats enjoy in that state, a, a massive outpouring in support of abortion rights. Now, look, one special, one poll, exit polls, grains of salt. But I, I do agree with Paul that there's a substantial amount of evidence that it, it's not just evidence and the clear majorities of Americans reacted very strongly and very negatively to the Supreme Court ruling. Well, two things. One, I, I think if, if you look at elections across the country state by state, I can only speak specifically right now to New Hampshire. The Supreme Court sent it back to the states. What did New Hampshire do? All the federal offices are Democrats, all the state offices, the control of the House, the Senate, and the governorship are Republican. If people were out there voting, and we are, New Hampshire's a swing state, if independents are voting based on abortion, we would have had more Democrats elected to at least the Senate and the House. The governor probably wouldn't have changed because he's very popular. That being said, the, the one place I, I think I agree with everybody is that um, you know, I don't agree with Paul in your assessment on what made people come out and vote. But what I do think is Republicans and Democrats are doing the same thing right now. And I don't know what it's going to mean in two years. They are completely I'm talking about the ones in Washington. They are completely misreading the 2022 election. Republicans are taking a victory victory lap in Congress being like, we won, we won without breaking it down and feel how, see how much they should have actually won. And the fact they lost the Senate and Democrats are misreading the reason behind the win. So what are we going to do in two years? We'll be back here doing the same missteps on both sides of the aisle that we're done this time around. That is possible. That is possible. I still think that this Supreme Court has shown that we're in a, to quote Ronald Reagan, a trust but verify type situation. And it does no harm and quite possibly some good to protect our fundamental rights legislatively 
through the through the people's representatives in Congress. And that's why we applaud the bipartisan passage of this particular bill. Um, hey, we've got time for just really one more. Maybe we'll sneak in a bonus. Let's just quickly touch on the outbreak of protests in China. Obviously, we don't do a lot of foreign affairs on the show because the three of us are much more domestic policy experts than foreign affairs experts. But it does deserve to be noted that this is the, the biggest wave of protests we've seen in that country in an awfully long time. Um, and it, it seems to be tied to COVID restrictions, which has at least some connection to what we've seen in this country. Um, Paul, is that the right connection to make? Or, or is it is it right to see a connection to the, the protests in Iran? What What are you taking away from this? I think, you know, look, every, every it seems like it's a gener, gen, it's in a way it's generational. Um, the Chinese have uh, have had this zero really incredibly strict zero COVID policy that has meant repeated shutdowns, including of their large cities. Nobody nobody's happy about that. But um, the Chinese are seeing um, around seeing what goes on around the world, uh, they they see the protests in Iran against um, a dictatorial regime. They know they understand the restrictions they're they're living with. Um, and uh, what's been surprising to me is the 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 nonviolent uh, response by the Chinese government. Um, that's a good thing, but it's also now they're sending university students home. They want to they want to kind of break up break up break up the protests uh, that way. But it's clear that that things are not um, things are not happy in China. Their economy isn't doing um, as well as it has been, um, uh, and uh, it's a fa it's a fascinating it's fascinating to me that it's the COVID restrictions that that seem to have been the spark uh, for for these protests. Um, they are apparently um, somewhat sporadic. They're not uh, involving millions of people, but still uh, they've got to be concerning to the Chinese government. Alicia? Well, I think Paul nailed it at the beginning. It, it's generational, right? People in China and Iran have been able to see, you know, through social media and other places, what freedom looks like. The China protest is interesting because it's about COVID lockdown, but what started it was actually a fire in an apartment building where 10 people were killed and it was caught on video. And what it has to do with COVID is the firefighters couldn't get there because it had been a lockdown community. And so the firefighters couldn't get there to put the fire out and save the people's lives. That little spark no pun intended, obviously, is what sparked the outcry of demonstrations against COVID restrictions. And we call them restrictions, but these are really draconian measures. They put people in encampments if they're suspected of contract tracing and things like that. Iran's, you know, for freedom too. And it's young people who are out in the streets because a young woman was killed in at the hands of Iranian police. And they're saying, no more, we want freedom. And, you know, there's a thirst for it. And who can deny it? And when you're able to see that it exists, something that couldn't happen 50 years ago, you're going to thirst for it. And now they're trying to get their drink of water. My one note about the China protest situation is that for the, in recent years, the Chinese government has been carrying out a genocidal policy against the people of the Xinjiang region, uh, the Uyghur population there. Mm -hmm. And what set off these protests happened in the capital of that region, in Urumqi. And so the rest of the country is saying that this lockdown there, despite the Chinese government's efforts to paint 
the, the, the Uyghurs as terrorists, as Muslims, as others, as a threat. The rest of China isn't seeing it that way. They're standing in solidarity with their suffering. And that's it's an interesting aspect to me. Hey, we've got to wrap up the show. We're recording this before the U.S.-Iran soccer match today. Perhaps the most significant soccer match for the U.S. men's national team in living memory. And all I can say is USA, USA. 